0: So we have been in the middle of a series. I'm so glad that you're here. If you just dropped in today for the first time, we haven't seen you for a while, welcome. If you're new, I'm so glad you're here. You caught us at a great time. We're in the middle of a series called Faces. Now, I don't use a lot of acronyms Uh, when I preach. I'm not an acronym guy uh, most of the time, but I love this acronym because it's built off of all of the, or many of the one another statements that the scripture calls us to on how we treat one another. And so we jumped off talking about forgiving one another and uh, how, we were designed in relationship and the tension of, of letting things go so that we can heal and grow with each other. And, and uh, then we got into accepting one another and we dealt with the tension that people who aren't just like us are still created in the image of God. So how do we relate to people who are not like us but are also created in the image of God? And last week, we talked about caring for one another and, and what it genuinely meant. We walked through the story of Ruth and, and this picture of a cycle of care and how we care for people and, uh, and treat them with the value that God actually built and created inside of them and how we never know when we're going to be on what cycle of the care cycle. Sometimes we're in a position to demonstrate care and sometimes, come on, church, we need some care. And it sets us up for that. And so, so we've been walking through these one another's and it's been this great uh, conversation about what does Jesus expect us to do as we relate to one another and how much does it change the way we interact with one another when we recognize that every single person that we go eyeball to eyeball with was created in the image of God that there was something different about that dust that that God grabbed from the earth and breathed life and said, let us create man in our own image, that we carry each and every one of us the image of God. And so it changes the way we interact with one another, and it challenges us to treat each other like we were created in the image of God. And so this week, we are going to walk into this conversation about encouraging one another, And I love the conversation about encouraging. I like to talk about being a point of encouragement. As a matter of fact, all the way back to 2016, we were talking about uh, encouraging one another because I just think that this is a thing the church, come on now, is without excuse in terms of being an agent of encouragement. But when you look out across the globe, you would think that the church is one of the most discouraging things out there. Everything seems to have a negative slant, the don'ts and and fit this way and be this way. And and we lose the point of encouragement. As a matter of fact, um, way back in 2016, when we were first talking about this, I I came across a study that said that people on a day-to-day basis face about six conversations that are discouraging to every one encouraging conversation that we have. That means you take about six shots of you're not good enough, you're too slow, you didn't get this right, you don't have what it takes, you're not the one, something's wrong with you. What were you thinking? We get about six of those to every attaboy. Good job. Nice finish. And can you imagine the weight on the scale that we face day by day with six times the volume of discouragement? No wonder we live in a culture that's over-medicated and fighting depression. We're bombarded with negative conversations, tearing us down, shredding our identity, attacking that very image of God that we bury, that we bury, that we carry. So here's this conversation about encouragement, and I love it. First Thessalonians 5.11, Paul writes this. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as, in fact, you are doing. And I love that he says, just as, in fact, you are doing. He's saying, I already expect that you're doing this, so keep on doing this. I love how uh, there's, like, a double positive here instead of a double negative. He's like, do this, because I know you're doing it, right? Right? Come on, parents. You've had that conversation. Clean up your room. Finish cleaning up your room, because I know you are cleaning up your room, right? Because we had this conversation. And here's Paul with the double positive leaning into this conversation with followers of Jesus. And he's saying, listen, you're the encouragement people. You're the build each other up people. You're the invoke strength in each other people. Because I know that's what you're doing, right? I know that's what's coming out of you, right? Right? So breaking out of comfort zones and moving uh, into following of Jesus sometimes is going to take a little encouragement. Sometimes it's gonna take a little strength. Sometimes it's gonna take a little, you got this, and that's an important thing. If you look up the word encouragement in the Bible, the, the breakout of that word literally says to come alongside and call out the best in someone. I love that picture. I come alongside. I put my arm around you, and I call out the best in you. I believe the best for you. I partner with you, and I call out what is best in you. How many of you would love to have someone do that in your life? Yeah, I thought so. When Paul says encourage, he means get out of your bubble. Get close with someone. Allow someone close with you. See them for who they are created in the image of God and call them to that truth. In just the English language, when we say encourage, it just means to inspire with courage. And I love the word inspire. I think we missed that that the word inspire comes from two words, from in the spirit. Right? From in the spirit. So get into their spirit. Come on now and fill it with courage. Get into someone's spirit and fill them with courage. Because when we're discouraged, that means that there is a lack, come on now, in our spirit of courage. So in the English, we recognize, man, I want to put courage into your spirit. It's this idea of just filling you up with courage, even if there is a courage deficit. And let's be honest, we have a courage deficit in the church today. We need courage, and we get courage by being around each other, being in community, getting people next to us who will run with us, who will put their arm around us, who will say, you got this and God's got this. And remember who God is and remember who you are. And together with God, there's nothing that's impossible for him who believes. And I know you're in a tough situation right now, but be encouraged. God is faithful. Come on, church. How many of you could use a little of that in your life? See, we all need help when our courage fails us. The weight of discouragement can leave us empty. And so Jesus, time and time again, and the scriptures time and time again, call us to pour encouragement back into one another. We all need help when our courage fails us. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and five, it says, and let us consider, so we got to ponder this, how we may spur one another on, like, come on guys, you got this, towards love and good deeds. And let us not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of do it of doing, but let us do what? Encourage one another all the more as you see the day approaching. What does he mean the day? He says, Jesus is coming back. We are on a path. And pretty soon we won't need all the stuff we need right now. But while we do, as that's coming close, we're gonna need each other. We're gonna need to gather, we're gonna need to get into community, throw an arm on someone, do what the scripture says when it says encourage, come alongside and call out the best. Say, you got this. There's hope, there's opportunity for you. And the author of Hebrew says, we got to think about how else we can do that. How many different ways can we do that? Let's be intentional. Let's figure it out. Let's call each other towards love. Let's call each other towards good deeds. Let's not give up getting together, because some do that, but let's remember to encourage one another. Come alongside each other, and let's do it more and more and more as we see the day approaching. It's like the author saying, Jesus is coming back. You're going to need a lot of courage. You're going to need a lot, so let's get together and do it. So this morning, I'm going to read to you. I'm gonna, we're going to dive into the scriptures. If you got a Bible, you can jump ahead of me to Galatians chapter 2. If you uh, read the Bible on your phone or on your device, you can fire it up. I won't judge you. I won't think you're checking your Facebook. You can get ahead of me to uh, Galatians chapter 2. And I love this story that we're going to hit in the book of Galatians because basically, Paul is writing to a group of people, and he's telling them the story about a church potluck going wrong. That's basically what he's doing. He's saying there was a church potluck and it went south fast, but we learned some things. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to a church potluck or a place where the, the, uh, the, the church is gathered to eat, but it doesn't always go well. As a matter of fact, I've seen people leave a church over a potluck, <laughs> over an argument afterwards of whose pot is whose. And they left the church, two of the same pots. That one's mine. No, 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 that one's mine. I hate you. We're leaving. So don't tell me the churches can't, uh, can't struggle, come on church folks, with some pretty silly things when we start losing our courage. We start losing focus of what's important. So Paul's going to tell a story as he's writing to encourage a group of people who are following Jesus about a church potluck that goes horribly bad. It goes horribly wrong. Now, I got to give you some setup. He's writing to the church in Galatia. And I I was doing some some more study, and I never really recognized this. If you look like through history in Roman time, the Gauls, like, you know, you heard of the Gauls, that group of people. They're kind of heathens. They're crazy people. The Gauls, that's Galatians. Never put that together. So there you go. If you never put that together, that was huge for me. I was like, oh, I just now I recognize where these people are at. They're in the middle of Turkey. And when Paul writes to the church in Galatians, he's actually writing to about three or four church churches that have popped up in these little cities all around kind of the capital area of Gaul, which was uh, now modern-day Turkey, okay? So if you kind of know on a map, you know, you got Jerusalem, and you head up through Syria, and you get to the other side of Syria, and you get to Turkey, and then Turkey's really big, and so by the time you get up to where Gaul is, it's quite a ways north of Jerusalem, And Paul, on one of his ministry journeys, if you look at like Acts 13 and then again in 18, he visits, he does kind of this lap through central Turkey and and these churches spring up. And what's fascinating about these churches is there's like almost no Jews represented in these churches. These are just completely Gentile churches, people who don't have a Jewish background uh, at all. And so they don't have like the Torah, they don't have the law and the prophets, they don't have the Old Testament scriptures at all. The rest of the Bible has hasn't been written yet. There's a few letters that are kind of floating around. All they have is this preacher that came to town named Paul who went into the town and started reasoning with them about faith, and about God and told them the story of Jesus and said, God so loved the world. He sent his one and only son that whoever believed in him wouldn't perish, but have everlasting life. And there was a debt that you owed to the creator of the universe because you weren't perfect. And he recognized that there had to be some way to get your imperfect into his perfect presence. And so the same way we understand when a debt is owed and has to be paid, he took on his own shoulders by sending his son the weight that you would have had to pay that would create separation. And his son came and lived a perfect sinless life. He was fully God, he was fully man. He lived a perfect life. And then they arrested and executed him. And the weight of all your guilty was placed on him so you could be found not guilty. But listen to this the grave couldn't hold him, it couldn't contain him. And he burned. Burst out of the grave, and he's alive, and you can know him, and he wants relationship with you today. And he tells the story of the gospel to these people in Galatia, and they get saved. Come on, somebody. They start trusting in Jesus. And and Paul starts structuring them in these these little ecclesias, these little church movements that that are small movements of people moving towards Jesus. And they're in houses, and they're gathering, and they're growing, and they're praying for one another. But they don't have scripture, and they don't have law, and they don't have any of this other background information about the history of God. They just know Jesus, and it's changed everything for them. So this is a series of churches that have popped up in in Galatia. and, and, uh, And so Paul is writing this letter to this group of churches because something has happened in the time from when he did a lap around there and then circled back and encouraged and strengthened all of them. In that time, there has been a group of newer Christians who are also, I mean, everyone's new Christians at this point, right? Who have a Jewish background who came from Jerusalem and they were under James's ministry. Remember James, the brother of Jesus, was the first pastor in Israel and Jerusalem, I mean, and so they were kind of under his ministry, and now they have kind of come out as missionaries, and they're visiting some of these churches that have gotten popped up all over the place and following some of the places where Paul's gone and and Barnabas and, and where they've planted churches, and they show up, and they see these guys and gals who are following Jesus, but they don't have any history at all with any of the Jewish customs and cultures, and they go, oh, you guys didn't get the rest of the story. We got to give you the rest of the story. See, we're Jews from Jerusalem where all of this took place. And, and we're, we're, we heard the story from Peter, one of the 12. And we go to church with James, the brother of Jesus. And we know Paul, he's kind of a hot shot. But come on, Paul's from Tarsus. We're from Jerusalem, we're from James's church. We're from the mother church. So let us straighten you out. You, you got Jesus right. That's great. Let's give you the rest. Because Jesus isn't enough. We're going to need you to get some of the law. So you got, you got to cut pork out of your diet. You got to take Saturdays off. Oh, and by the way, fellas, snip, snip. See, the conversation was going pretty cool for a minute there. And they're like, all right, well, you know, pork, whatever. You know, I'm kind of, you know, I'm, 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 I'm a vegan or something. I don't know what they were, but, right? They're like, I can cut pork, that's fine. And you want me to take an extra day off? Sweet, like, that sounds all right. But come on, gentlemen, when the conversation got to snip, snip, some fighting broke out. Because that's easy for you to say. You got circumcised on the eighth day. You don't remember that nonsense. I'm old now. Things have been working Fine. And Paul didn't say anything about this. So, so no to all the other things. You can imagine the tension. So this fight breaks out between these Jewish Christian believers who have a, a history and a backstory with the law and these brand new baby Christians who have no history and no backstory with that at all. And really, there's two key arguments that are being made. One argument is you can't get rid of the law because the law is good and it came from God. So don't get rid of the law. And the other argument they're making is if you get rid of the law, people will just go crazy. If you make it so easy that all you have to do is ask for forgiveness and be forgiven, people will just go crazy. They'll do whatever they want to do. Unsko, Let's go. Sorry, Jesus. Right? Like they're just partying, and so they make what seems like a rational argument. We need the law. The law keeps us on the straight and narrow. The law is what identifies us as different than everyone else. The law's been around for over two thousand years at this point. They've, they've 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 used the law and utilized the law, and it came from God. So if you're going to be followers of Jesus and pick up where 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 you are right now, you got to go back. And pick up all that weight too. So Paul's not having it. And he sees this tension and he sees this fight. And he says, Let me tell you a story about a church potluck that went crazy. And that's where we pick up the story. I'm in Galatians chapter 2. I lost my. I'm going to start in verse 8. Paul's writing. And remember, the argument is, Peter, Peter was close to Jesus. He got circumcised. All of us are circumcised. Why wouldn't you also want to do this? So Galatians chapter 2, verse 8 says, For God, who was at work in Peter as an apostle to the circumcised, this is Paul writing this, he was also at work at me as an apostle to the Gentiles. He's like, listen, Peter was called to people who already had this culture. They already had this backstory. And so he went and ministered to people who already agreed with him on that, but he called me to go to minister to people who didn't have this history or this backstory. Verse nine, James, Cephas, that's also Peter, and John, those esteemed as pillars, gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship when they recognized the, listen to this word, grace given me. And they agreed that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. So I love this. He says, says, hold on, hold on, hold on. These guys that are in town are telling you that Peter demands this, that James demands this. I want you to know something. Me and Barnabas, we showed up we had a conversation and we recognized that I was called to go reach people who didn't have a Jewish background, Gentiles, and that it wasn't, res- it wasn't a part of their responsibility or, or culture to deal with some of this legal law stuff. And that Peter was going to go to these people who were tied up in knots over the law and try to unhinge them from some of that tying up. And they give us the right hand of fellowship. He's like, there's no fight between me and Peter. We got, we got friends. We're friends listen to verse 10. All they asked was that we should continue to remember the poor. And that's the very thing I'd been eager to do all along. He said, all they asked is that we remember all of our assignment is to take care of each other, especially those that are without. Because I was always eager to do that. You've seen me taking up offerings and, and trying to bring support and help people. And then he tells this great story. Verse 11, he says, so when Cephas, again, that's Peter, came to Antioch, now Antioch is north of Jerusalem. It's in Syria. And Antioch, in the early church, kind of became the hub of all the activity. It was like the launching point into uh, the rest of Europe. It was the biggest gathering of Christians and believers. There was a lot of tension in Jerusalem. James was pastor there. There was a big church there. But the big hub of operations, the home church, was in Antioch. And so Paul says, Peter came to Antioch. I'm going to call him Peter instead of Cephas, so it's not confusing. It's just his Greek name. It says, when Peter came to Antioch, listen to this. I opposed him to his face. Woo! Come on, church folks. Every once in a while, we got to get each other's face. Sometimes we do. It says, I opposed him right to his face. This is Peter. Peter. Peter, the first priest, right? Peter, on this rock, I'll build this church. Peter, like, you know, walking on water, Peter. That guy. Paul says, he came to Antioch. And I was like, oh, no, you didn't. Says so I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? This is the potluck, right? It says, For for before certain men came from James... And he used to eat with the Gentiles. Okay, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat for, with the Gentiles. He said, so he was hanging out with the Gentiles because Antioch wasn't, wasn't full. It was, there was Jews, there was Gentiles. It was kind of mixed. It was Syria, it was north. There was multiple cultures. And he said, he used to just sit down and eat with the Gentiles with normal people, just anyone that he went to. But then suddenly some Jews came and they were coming north from Jerusalem. And he says, he used to eat with the Gentiles, but when those guys arrived, he began to draw back. And he separated himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. See, he lost his courage. He became without courage. So some folks showed up and they said, hey, you're a Jew. Why are you eating? Now, here's the thing you have to understand. The Jews would not share meals with the Gentiles. They believed that that would make you fundamentally unclean because the Gentiles would eat food that was abhorrent to the Jews. And here's the thing, we, we don't do this anymore. Like, you ever been to, to like a Mexican restaurant and they bring out a thing of dip? Someone takes their chip and they're like, mmm, they bite their chip in half. And then they reach back with that same chip. And everyone kind of recoils. And you're like, no, can I get another thing of dip? <laughs> right? You just, I'll just take a personal one, thank you very much, because I don't want that, right? You got to remember, in this culture, they would bring drink out, that they would share a cup they would bring uh, like a a soup out in one bowl and they would all dip their their hardened bread into there and eat it. And they were double dippers, (laughs) right? They weren't worried about all the stuff that we're worried about right now. They were double, triple, quadruple dippers. And so if you sat at a table with Gentiles and they were unclean in your mind and they ate things that were unclean and they put unclean things on their food and in their mouth and then they dipped it, what happens to you? You're unclean. And so this Jewish culture would not eat and interact with Gentiles. Now, if you're a Gentile and you don't know anything about their culture and you sit down to eat with them and they're like, and they get up and leave, what do you think of them? They're snooty. They're uppity. They're judging you. They don't want you. They don't like you. They're too good for you. And so Paul says... Peter, remember Peter had the vision with Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, and God's like, nothing that you thought was unclean is unclean. It's what's inside of a man that makes him unclean. It's not stuff they eat and consume. It's the heart, and look on the inside. That's how you can tell what's inside of a person. And Peter's like, I got it, God. This is totally new for me, but I'll be the one that does it. So he's living his life like he can interact and just love every single soul. Come on now, like they bear the image of Christ. He's broken down his prejudices. He's living among them, but suddenly this group comes who has those old prejudices, and he flip-flops and what drives that flip-flop fear well I don't want to lose my reputation with with the Jews I don't want Jerusalem to think less of me I don't want James to hear some stories about me I I don't want that to happen so I'll offend these people who I've been assigned to who Jesus loves who are created in the image of God because I'm worried about what these other people are going to think about me come on church do I got to draw the lines together for you, or can we draw some lines? You think this stuff doesn't happen in the church? It happened at the beginning, and we've had to fight it every time since. It's a church potluck, and they went whoosh, different ways. So Paul says, I opposed him to his face. I'm not dealing with this. That's not okay. It says he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid, afraid, are you serious, of those who belong to the circumcision? Now, here's the thing I want to say too. Peter messes up a lot in the scriptures. I like Peter. He's always having some whiffs. But this is after the death and resurrection of Jesus. This is after he's a follower of God. And I just want to be, like, transparent. We all mess up. Some of you like when I get up here and tell stories about messing up because you're like, oh, good, pastor messes up. Oh, it makes me feel so much better that I can right and that's fine. Draw your strength from my failures and weaknesses. That's okay. I'm happy to give it out. That's my best, it's my truth. It's who I am. But we know that you're not perfect, just like you know that I'm not perfect, that we're just all doing the best we can. And I love it. It's just a story of Peter, he's leading the church. He's the guy who preached and two, the church exploded. 2,000 men came to Jesus. The Holy Spirit, he's indwelt with the Holy Spirit. He has power and authority. He's like, silver and gold, if i numb and such as I have, give I thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. That guy, that guy is intimidated. Intimidated. He gets bullied by some prejudice. Oh, don't eat with those people. They're not good enough. They don't have the values that we have. They haven't gone through it. They don't know our story. Don't dip your bread into the same cup as them. And he gets bullied, and he loses his courage. He loses his courage. So here comes Paul saying, I'll give you some courage. <laughs> says the other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, listen to this, even Barnabas was led astray. Barnabas, whose name is encouragement, loses courage. Why? Because peer pressure. Racism, selfishness, steals the courage from Barnabas. When Peter loses his courage, all of the folks behind him follow and go, oh, I guess that's what we're doing now. Can you imagine that church potluck? (laughs) These people that they've been getting reached by Peter, by Barnabas. Barnabas has been saying, you got this, Jesus loves you. You were outsiders, now you're insiders. We were guardians of the law, but now the law is fulfilled in Jesus, and you're free in him. And they're like, yeah, we're dipping bread. And then these other Jews come up, and they're like, no, peace out. We're going to sit over here. Don't dip your cup over here with us. Can you imagine that tension? Paul says, man, this happened in Antioch. Now, remember, he's writing to Galatians. So he's writing up here into Gaul, into the middle of Turkey, and he's like, let me give you an example of what happens when sometimes these people with their prejudice and their, and their history and their expectations show up, it causes even the people who you think are awesome to have to struggle and make a decision about their courage. And they sometimes also need to be encouraged, even the Barnabas. I love the picture. Uh, just the other day, and I, this is silly, but I can't not say it because it's just in my head, is uh, I was watching, I think it was On Demand or something like that with my kids, and we were watching old Dr. Seuss stuff. You guys remember the Starbelly Sneeches? If you don't know the star belly I won't waste your time. But basically, there was, there's an animal, and some of them had stars and some of them didn't. And they were in this big argument over who was better. And then the guy shows up and he's like, I'll put stars on everybody. And then everyone was the same and then no one was special. And so then they got their stars removed and it became this big zoo. And here was the thing if you think an exterior thing, like a star on your belly, is going to make you better than someone else, you're a fool. You're a fool. You're a fool. You're a fool. Paul says, I got right into his face. I don't care if you're Peter. I don't care who you think you are. And he says, they all joined him in their hypocrisy. And I love this picture of hypocrisy because let's face it. There's not a survey out there about why people are leaving the church that number, by number three, it doesn't get to hypocrisy. There's not one out there that by number three, it doesn't get to Hypocrisy. You say one thing, but you do another. You say you love people, but you treat people like garbage. You say you care about the poor, but you don't serve the poor. You say everyone's welcome, but I don't feel welcome. Whatever it is. And Paul's like, the hypocrisy. And I love that. The word hypocrisy, if you know that kind of the, the etymology of the word, it was, it comes, it's an actor, it comes from like the kind of the, the Greek word for actor. And back then, you know, it was kind of weird. They'd have those big masks, like those creepy looking masks things. And they'd put the mask on and they'd play another character. And it was like creepy and weird. And that mask, the people behind the mask, that was, that was a, an actor. But the Greek word for that was a hypocrite. Someone who put a mask over themselves and pretended to be something they were not. And so here's Paul saying, don't be that thing. Don't put on a mask and pretend to be something that you're not. He goes, these guys were hypocrites. They said they loved them, but as soon as they put a mask on, they said, oh, we don't care about you. He's like, knock it off. I think this is time and time again, a tension that we feel even in the church because none of us want to be that person. None of us want to be a hypocrite. Nobody signs up and says, the thing I want to be is cowardly and hypocritical. Right? No one starts their day off with, how big of a hypocrite can I be today? Or how much can I lose courage today? But it's always moments that we didn't expect. It's moments where we didn't know the tension was going to hit. We weren't sure what was about to happen. Verse 14. Paul says, when I saw the way they were acting was not in line with the truth of the gospel. That's powerful. Remember, the gospel, I just, I just spent time on breaking it out. The gospel is the story of the good news of Jesus. And they've been telling, Paul's been sharing that gospel with these, with these Gentiles for years now. And he says, when I saw the way that they were acting was not in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you you Jew. You are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. He says, yeah, you're a Jew, but everything you do in life is the same as the Gentiles because you've received the same freedom to now be free from the law. So you dip your bread in any bowl you want. You eat any food you want. You don't feel any of the pressure of the law. You don't live like you're under the law. You're a Jew, but you actually live like a Gentile. Stop lying. Stop lying. Then he goes, how is it then that you're trying to force these Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? He says, you went through your entire culture to receive grace. And now you're looking at these guys saying they're not good enough unless they go backwards instead of going forward. This is the argument he's making to the Galatians. Because remember, they're battling these two two fighting uh, 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 ideologies. I like how Warren Wiersbe, the uh, commentator, says, what we believe determines how we behave. And he's saying, you believe that you're free and you've been behaving that way. Stay consistent. But the moment someone else comes in and they don't believe that they're free, you flip-flop and behave the other way. That's a hypocrite. And knock it off. Ultimately, he's saying, you don't really believe the gospel if you're behaving this way. Because the gospel that we've been going town to town, city to city saying is that Jesus is enough. That you don't need the extra law in order to be saved. Jesus is enough. That's the gospel we've been saying. But what you're doing when you behave this way is you're saying that Jesus is not enough. It's going to be Jesus plus something else. So there's this incredible tension. Do we need the law? They're showing up saying we need the law. Everyone needs the law. If we don't have the law, the law came from God, and the law is good. So we need the law. And if we give out too much grace, people are just going to keep going crazy. They're going to party all the time. We can't have that. So Paul is combating this argument, and he's saying the answer to both those things is grace. Grace is the fulfillment of the law. And here's the thing about the law. I heard it said this way, and I'll just give you this answer because I know some of you are tense in the room. What are you saying, Pastor Mike? We don't care about the law? I said, No, the law is good, and it came from God. And Jesus said, I I didn't come to remove the law, I came to fulfill the law. The law is, is, is the word of God. But the law is like a diagnostic tool, it's not the cure. The law let us know that there was distance between us and God, that we had, because of our own sin and our own mistakes and our own nature, we had distanced ourselves from God. The law gave us the diagnostic, but it didn't give us the cure. Jesus is the cure. If the law was the cure, Jesus wouldn't have had to come and die. He wouldn't have said, if there's any way, Father, take this cup from me. God would have been like, there is a way, the law. Don't worry about the cross. If the law was sufficient, if the law encompassed everything, then it would have been there. But the law was like the diagnostic. So here's the thing if you're sick and someone comes and gives you a shot of penicillin and you're better, how much do you need to know about your diagnosis before that? That's Paul's argument. It's helpful, and it's good, and it helps us tell the story to other people who are sick, but we are not under the diagnosis anymore. We've received the cure. Oh, man, that's way better news than you guys caught right there, so I'm going to try that one more time. We are not, you are glad that you're not under. How many times you worked on a Saturday? You are glad that you are not fully under the law anymore. Come on. How many times you ate bacon? When's the last time you mix match two types of thread in your clothing? I mean, come on. You are glad. That law diagnosed the disease, but it didn't provide the cure. Jesus and his grace is the cure. So Paul says, yeah, I get it. The law is important, but we don't have to go back. There's no reason to go back. We're moving forward. Stop putting this yoke on people that they weren't designed to carry. They don't need it. Stop treating them like they're missing something. Because if you've got to add something else to this, then you're saying Jesus is not enough. And either is or he isn't. So which gospel are you preaching? Which one? Are you preaching the gospel that Jesus is enough? Or are you preaching the gospel that Jesus plus getting circumcised, quitting bacon, not working on Saturday? I mean, we could open Leviticus. Let's bounce through some fun stuff. And it's good. I'm not saying it's not good. God used it, sometimes supernaturally, to create a peculiar people who were called to him so he can ignite, enact his plan to send a savior into the world who would rescue all of mankind, not just the Jews. And that's the story. It was good news. And to answer the other argument of, well, everyone will just go crazy. Paul goes on and he's like, he's like, Why would people just go crazy if they're really experiencing Jesus? The evidence that they are following Jesus is that they're moving towards Jesus. Now, are they perfect? No. Are you perfect, Peter? But they're moving towards Jesus. And why would anyone who had an authentic relationship with Jesus want to tear down that thing just to rebuild it again every time sin came along to tempt them? He's saying the evidence is you're going to be coming more and more like Jesus. And yes, some people are going to mess up. You're messing up right now by how you're judging everybody. But if your issue is you're afraid that people who are free might do the wrong thing from time to time, um, that's Jesus' problem, not yours. Stop picking it up like it's your problem. So this amazing tension happens You can jump ahead in the story in Galatians, the argument that he makes, verse 20. So he breaks that out in those other verses, verse 20. So Paul says, I've been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live now in the body, I live by faith in the son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. He's like, I don't have to carry all that law. I'm experiencing new life in Jesus. And look into verse 21. He says, so I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. If the law worked, what was Jesus doing here? He died for nothing. If, it, if there was any other way, any other way, he asked God to do it. But there wasn't. And so when you add to the grace of God more layers of rules on top of rules on top of rules, and that you say that that is required, In order to experience the grace of God, he died for nothing then. If those rules could have got you there, he died for nothing. So knock it off. To which some would say, oh, here we go, pastor. You're just letting us go crazy. You're getting rid of the law. No. If you're moving towards Jesus, you don't think he's going to draw you out of the mess? He doesn't think he's going to draw you out of the addiction. You don't think he's going to draw you out of the fear. You don't think he's going to draw you out of the sin. Paul's like, that's the argument I'm making. Let Jesus do that. Let his grace do that. I was crucified. I killed my old self. I'm not trying to do it on my own. If you're a genuine follower of Jesus, that's just the mark of your life. So Paul, spit and courage, to the Galatians by telling a story of when he had to spit some courage back into Peter he says man if Peter can whiff we can all whiff if he lost courage and became afraid because of this pressure we might all lose courage from time to time and be afraid but don't ever let anyone steal away the power of the grace of God hold on hold on to that incredible truth and freedom. How do we remain in courage? How do we not lose courage? 1 Corinthians 16, 13. I like how Paul says it here. He says, so be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. He says, be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. And then verse 14, he says, and do everything in love. You want to know how to kind of remain encouraged? First, you got to be on your guard. Listen, most of the time when I talk to people who have had courage failures, it was something that happened suddenly. They didn't have time to brace. They didn't have their guard up. They didn't have their strength up. They weren't ready. They weren't prepared and in crept something and they weren't thinking and they didn't realize they were at work and everyone was doing the wrong thing. And they said, oh, come on, you do the wrong thing too. And they're like, uh, uh, okay. And the courage failed. And they sacrificed what they knew and who they were and compromised because they were surprised and they weren't prepared. So what does Paul say? He says, he says, be on your guard. Be prepared. And he says, stand firm. He says, don't let anyone push you around. Don't be a pushover. Don't be soft and a pushover. He says, be strong. Some of you are like, that sounds harsh. I like being soft and kind, Right? And he's like, listen, the image of God, the, the, the courage of God, it is, it is both lion and lamb. All right? So we are soft and gentle as doves, but we are wise as serpents. And he's like, it's okay to be strong. Sometimes we think of Jesus and, and everyone's like, well, Jesus is just this pacifist. That's the same pacifist who just threw over tables when he saw people doing the wrong thing. That's the same pacifist who took, it, who took a look at these Pharisees who were standing and putting a yoke on people and he couldn't handle it anymore. He's like, you brood of vipers, knock it off. It's also the same Jesus who turned the other cheek and taught about the real power and strength It's not taking the bait and going off and being crazy and reckless and fighting every time someone tries to poke at you. He was lion and lamb. He says, well, how do we be lion and lamb? Well, you just, you do everything in love. Because sometimes love requires strength. Come on, we know that. Sometimes love says, don't run in the street. you are well, you so mean? Yeah, well, don't run in the street. I love you too much to let you just run in the street wild. So no to that. Sometimes love does that, right? Sometimes love says, oh, you lost the game. Come here. You're not alone. I got you. I got you. It's okay. It's okay. It says, be on your guard, stand firm, be courageous, be strong, and do everything in love. Lion and lamb. This is not permission to be a bully. Having courage and being courageous is not the same as being a bully. It's not the same as jumping into a conversation and being like, well, mm-mm, mm-mm, right? That's not the same thing. Why? Because that's not in love. You're not just picking a fight trying to hurt someone or destroy them. He says, do it in love. Love builds, brings life. But don't give up your courage. Don't lay down your courage. Don't sacrifice your courage. This conversation about courage and fear, it's not foreign in the Bible. As a matter of fact, fear is spoken of over 500 times in the Bible. 500 times the Bible talks about Fear. God really wants us to be encouraged. He knows that fear is a horrible idol. He knows that if fear takes the top spot in your life, it will paralyze you. It will keep you from walking after him and being who he's called you to be. He wants us to be encouraged. As a matter of fact, fear not or have courage or some version of that occurs at least 365 times in the Bible. That means you can open your Bible every day and read a different passage in a year about having courage or not being afraid. There are daily doses of courage in the Bible. Why? Because God wants you to have courage and be encouraged. This book is filled with encouraging comments and calling us to not only have courage, but to encourage one another. Why is this such a big deal? Well, John, the beloved, when he's on the island of Patmos, and he gets a picture of what it's like in heaven and the things at the end, and he has this incredible picture of kind of the end of the story. In Revelation 21.8, he says, But the cowardly, the unbelieving, the vile, the murderers, the sexually immoral, those who practice magic arts, the idolaters, and all liars, they'll be consigned to the fiery lake of burning sulfur. This is the second death. Listen. Francis Chan said it this way, but I love it. There's just, there's no cowards in heaven. Courage is a critical component to our faith. We talk about things that we don't like that are behaviors all the time. I don't like the way they, whatever. You know what the scripture doesn't like? When we lose our courage. When we abandon courage. 500 times. Conversations about fear. Fear. 365 plus times be courageous have courage don't fear all the way to the end of the story John sees a picture of heaven and a picture of those that are not in heaven and as he looks at the group that's not there the first adjective that comes out of his mouth cowardly I'm not trying to take a shot at you I'm just trying to give you truth from the scripture So, Paul says we got to encourage one another. When we see people losing courage, we got to call them to courage. When we see people carrying the weight of no courage, we're the group that calls them to do that. So, how do we do it? How do we give people courage? Let me give you just a couple quick tools and then we'll wrap it up. We're almost done. How do we give people courage? First, tell them the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. The truth will inspire courage. Sometimes people are like, well, what if I, you know, I'm wishy-washy, and we're just like, oh, it's okay to be wishy-washy. No, tell them the truth. Tell them the truth. We're the truth tellers. You want someone to have courage? Tell them the truth. Paul didn't just let Peter's lack of courage slide. He didn't just let his, his legalism take back over. He said, you know what that thing you're doing right now, that just doesn't look like courage. That looks like going backwards and not forward. That looks like like the old you. The old you used to believe that and live like that and do that. The new you isn't that person anymore. Don't fall backwards. Let me tell you the truth. Don't let me just high-five you and say, it'll be okay. Let me tell you the truth. We're the truth-tellers, and that inspires courage and calls people back to courage. Second way we do it, we got to walk the talk. Doesn't do us much good to call people to the truth if we're not living in the truth. If we're not doing it, Paul had credibility because he was living it out. He was going place to place, and he's like, this is the gospel that we've told. This is the story. We sat in a room, and we agreed that I would go to the Gentiles, and I would, and you would go to the circumcised group, and you would deal with the issues that they're untangling, and I'll deal with the issues that they're untangling, and we'll come back together with one story, one gospel, one truth, and that truth and that gospel is that no matter what your background is, no matter what you've been through, Jesus is enough for you. And he came for you. And so he's walking that out. So he has credibility when he walks in and he sees someone and he says, Hey, we, we had this conversation. We agreed that grace was sufficient. We've been through this already. He was walking it out. It's hard to call out courage in others if we're still in our comfort bubble. Come on. You should get involved in a small group bounce 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 away right you should you know what your problem is you need to you need to go and and, and serve or give or or take a step towards jesus bounce bounce back into our comfort bubble we got to get out of our comfort bubble start walking towards jesus and say hey i ain't there yet i'm working on it but i'm only right here why don't you come this way you can take a step too we have to walk the walk and the last thing and i'm just about ready to wrap it up When we're not sure how to give someone else courage, just go to the source. If someone's really lacking courage, if you're lacking courage, go to Jesus first. I have story after story of time sitting down with people, wrestling with their faith, with who God is and what they'll do. And they're looking at me like somehow I have hidden knowledge that they don't have access to. And you know what my hidden knowledge is? Let's go to Jesus. Let's go to Jesus. Let's see what the word says. Let's pray. Let's hear his voice. I may not have all the answers. Some of you are horrified at the idea of having to call someone to courage. And and here's the thing. You don't have to have all the knowledge to call someone to courage. You just say, hey, let me just take you to the source of courage. Let me take you towards Jesus. Because when I'm weak, he's strong. Would you stand? We're going to pray. I wonder what the things are in your life today that might be keeping you from taking another step towards Jesus, from really following God. Is there places where you're in a comfort zone, a comfort bubble? And it's too hard for you to take the next step because it might break some of your comfortability. It might mess with your free time or your spare cash or your living room might be messier because people came over and did life with you. I'm not sure what it is. Where are those places where where the next step that God's calling you to is too hard because you need some courage? Can I just tell you to be encouraged today? Can I come alongside you and call out God's best and say, don't settle for less? Don't settle for less. Are there prejudices or fear that are keeping you from living in what God's called you to be? Take those to Him. Are there people around you who are lacking courage and you haven't known what to do? Point them towards Jesus. Are you walking the walk? Is the conversation, are you okay if the conversation's uncomfortable, if it's true? Because that's what courage does. Maybe it scares you to death to see me put a scripture up there that says, basically, cowards are in hell. I mean, that's just what it says. I'm not sugarcoating anything. And maybe today, Jesus would just say, ha ha, don't worry. My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in your weakness. You received everything you needed to live in courage when you received me. So just trust me and take a step. Jesus, (laughs) we want to be a place, a family, a house of God, a church in this neighborhood that is courageous, that is willing to step out in faith and see people for who you see them as, people who are have different backgrounds and different stories who come from different places and to call them to an authentic gospel that you're enough for them. We want to, God, avoid this nasty legalistic thing that always wants to entangle itself whenever any group of believers get together and we want to move in freedom in the true, authentic gospel, that your grace is sufficient, that you paid the price for each and every one of us, that we can be free. We're not afraid that that means someone may go a little wild and crazy because as we get to know you, you'll draw us from those things into life. You want to do that. It's your job anyways, not ours. And I pray in our own lives where we've lacked some courage, our comfort bubble has caused us to not to not have the hard conversation where maybe you've called us and put us divinely next to someone where we shouldn't we know we're supposed to have had the conversation and, and courage just failed us would you encourage us would you call us out into a place of strength and life and then recognizing that the end result of that's not on us it's on you you do the work not us and that relieves so much of the fear anyways help us to trust you I pray that our neighborhood would, would, would be literally infected with courage as people who love you and trust you deposited in others. I pray this place would buck the trend of six-to-one discouragement versus encouragement because people who know and love you were calling out the truth and walking the walk and calling people to you. I pray it would transform neighborhoods, and we trust you and love you. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Would you be encouraged this week? Go out, deposit it in someone else. You got this. Amen.